Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. Nearly 5,000 years ago, an advanced civilization emerged on the Mediterranean island of Crete that would come to dominate the seas. Although they left behind a plentiful supply of artifacts, palaces, and artwork, it was not until its rediscovery in the modern age that they were finally called the Minoans. While we know comparatively little about their society, it is glaringly apparent that they played a vital role in the commerce of the ancient world and the development of modern Europe. Despite the unanswered questions, archaeologists believe that a volcanic eruption and a monstrous tsunami buried the secrets of the Minoan civilization for millennia. On this episode, we discuss the lost empire of the Minoans. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 2 of this series, we're discussing the great empires of the ancient world, the forces that created and destroyed them, and the legacies they leave behind that help shape our modern age. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, on my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, And of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. To this point in the series, we've been discussing the ancient world of the Near East as we know it, beginning with the flourishing of the world's first true civilization in Mesopotamia between the two rivers, then moving to Egypt and seeing the rise of the Nile River Valley. We next moved our discussion to the Iranian Plateau to discuss the Persian Empire, But now we are primed for a drastic and radical change in the way we think about the development of both Western civilization and the larger expansion of the ancient world. To this point, everything we've discussed has been focused in what we could consider today to be Southwest Asia or the Middle East. But now we're going to see a transition occur, and it's a transition that'll take us from that hot, dry, arid region we've discussed where river valleys are so critical to the development of a civilization, to a very different place, and that different place is now the European continent. Now we have to be very clear with a few very specific points. First and foremost is that any of the people we talk about in the ancient world on the European continent are directly related to, in their customs, in their stylings, and in their progression, to the people we've already talked about. Also, when we talk about the term Western civilization, we're talking about the modern rise of Europe and North America as we know it today. All of those share their origins in the regions we've already been discussing in the Middle East. How civilization moves from the Middle East to Europe is a process. And it's one that's not necessarily readily apparent. You know, one of the things I always try to stress when we talk about our history as a Western world, the history uh, of the ancient world, 
it's that although these places like Mesopotamia, like Persia, like Egypt, in places like the Middle East and Africa respectively, can seem very foreign to us, can seem very alien to us, it's absolutely pivotal that we understand that these places share a common Western culture with us, particularly in the Middle East. You know, the political circumstances of today, the geopolitical circumstances of today, really make the gap between East and West seem larger than ever. Even though, as far as interconnectivity goes, the world is now smaller than it's ever been before. You can jump on Skype, you can pick up a cell phone, and you can call someone in Japan or China, just like you could shout at your neighbor across the street. Technology is an amazing thing. But yet we're experiencing now this chasm between the modern European and American world, the Western world, and the larger Eastern world as we know them. And it's always challenging for individuals who see the world this way to consider that the Egyptian civilization, the Mesopotamian civilizations, have much more in common with us today than they have different. And when you factor that into 21st century terms, you'll see that the similarities are still very intense, even though we tend to highlight the differences more. Well, we're going to sort of, I guess we can say, reverse engineer that relationship in this episode, not seeing how we're so different from the larger Middle East and North African world, but but really seeing where the similarities come from, where they begin, and how the advancements of that region will spread to the European continent. On this episode, we'll be discussing a civilization known as the Minoans, and how they bridge the gap between the, the more familiar ancient world we've already talked about and the larger spreading of Western culture into Europe. To view that development as a jump, to view it as an expansion, is a misleading viewpoint. Because one of the things, hopefully, we've stressed up into this episode of the series is that this is a highly connected world. Yes, they're separated by river valleys, but the last time we left off, the three major river valleys of the ancient world, the Nile, the Mesopotamian, and the Indus River Valley, we're all under the control of one empire, the Persian Empire. So we can't really view this as a disconnected world. It's all very connected. But the connection we're going to talk about now is not going to be a land-based connection, but it's going to be based on a seafaring tradition. I always like to describe the Mediterranean Sea as the great bathtub of culture in the Western world. When you view it from a modern European perspective, the Mediterranean Sea touches all. It touches Spain, it touches France, it touches Italy, it touches Turkey, it touches Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, um, all the way to Morocco, all of North Africa. It's a huge, enormous body of water. But it's also one that's very easily traversed. And I think that's the key for us to understanding how this Western tradition will really emerge from the Middle East and continue growing onward. It wouldn't make a lot of sense for us to look at a place like the United Kingdom and then look at a place like the Persian Empire and expect to see a direct correlation. Geographically, there's no precedent for that. So if we're going to see the larger development and expansion of the Western world occur, it's going to have to happen in a place that's still in a relatively close geographic proximity to the ancient Near East as we've been discussing it. This will require a very brief but very important lesson in geography to really understand how this process occurs. 
The area we're going to be talking about for this portion of Season 2 of Wartime is going to be known to you today as the modern nation of Greece. Now, if I was just to say this happens in Greece, it's grounds for a very misleading discussion. Because the geography of Greece, the geomorphology of the landscape, and the landforms themselves are essential to understanding why the Greek world is such a unique and diverse place, and why civilization spreads the way that it does. If you could locate a map, either on your smartphone, on your computer, or, heaven forbid, perhaps an encyclopedia, you'll see that Greece has many different landforms and many different shapes of land in different places. The climate can differ from place to place, and therefore the lifestyle can differ from place to place. Starting from the south and working our way north, you'll notice this. The very southern reaches of the Greek world by today's standards are going to be a very large oblong island known as Crete. Now Crete effectively looks like a large rectangle but Crete is where for today's episode our story begins. The island of Crete going from east to west is about 160 miles long. At its widest point you're looking at about 37 miles long. At its most narrow north to south it's only 12 miles across. So what we're saying is, this is the largest island in the Greek world, there's no doubt. It's the fifth largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. And this is where the story begins, even though, considering the dimensions I just told you, it's still a very relatively small piece of geographic space. But the island of Crete is unique. If you've ever been there, I'd encourage you to go. It's a beautiful place, and it's a wonderful experience. Wonderful people as well. But the landscape of Crete is really telling for a lot of different reasons. When you consider it, what do we have? Well, it's a very rocky, mountainous island. The fact of the matter is, Crete is really divided uh, by a mountain range that travels east to west. It's actually a collection of ranges. It makes for a very rocky, uh, very intense ridgeline, though, when you see it. Crete does have fertile farmland, certainly enough to support its population, but not enough to support a huge population. And because it's such a small island, that's never really a problem Crete has. You have mountains, you have rivers, you have valleys, you have gorges, you have lakes. All of these things allow for what we could think of as the uh, raw ingredients or the raw materials of civilization in a microcosm to emerge. Crete is ideally located for this story to continue because it's about 100 miles south of mainland Greece as we know it. And it sits between the Aegean Sea and what we could think of as the Libyan Sea. It's only uh, less than a few hundred miles north of Egypt, as we'd say it. So if you're an Egyptian trader, if you're a Mesopotamian trader, if you're one of the great Phoenician sailors of the time period, and you're looking to explore a new land, a foreign land, that's still relatively close by, the island of Crete is well-placed to be successful in that regard. You know, we can often be very deterministic in history. That is, when we see patterns and we see themes emerge around the peoples and we see them over and over again, we often uh, underestimate, I think you could say, the human element of free will, the human element uh, of decision-making along the way. But I also think one of the things we, in history especially, really disregard or really underestimate is the power of geography, where you're located and how you live. 
The fact of the matter is, the island of Crete is, by today's standards, part of a larger Greek world. And when we look at the island of Crete in the ancient world and the people who live there, we can be deceived into believing that it's also an extension of the larger Greek world we're going to see emerge from the area eventually. But Crete is uniquely placed to really be a halfway point between the ancient Near East and Egypt and the larger conglomeration of Greek city-states that's bound to emerge in the north. But the story of Crete goes very far back, at least the way we're going to talk about it. It goes back 2,000 years before the birth of the Persian Empire. We're going way back here to the very beginning, to the year 2700 BCE, almost 5,000 years ago, to see the real first civilization emerge on Crete. On this episode, we'll talk about where it comes from and why it happens, what we know about them, and what some of the questions we have that we maybe will never find answers for. The island of Crete is an interesting story. Archaeologically, it's even more interesting in that regard in terms of how we learn about it. But I first want to clarify what we think and what we know about the island of Crete and its inhabitants today. The civilization that emerged on the island of Crete is considered by many to be, perhaps, the very first vestige of true civilization in the European world. Now make no mistake, there were hundreds of thousands of people on the European continent. There's no question about that. But when we talk about the real elements of civilization that we've highlighted so often in this, in this season so far, we really see them emerge first in Crete before going anywhere else. Now, here's where a lot of the dispute comes in. Because Crete is very much part of a larger Greek world today, many historians and scholars and archaeologists really just sort of wrote off the people of Crete as an extension of the early Greeks. They may perhaps be, again, the earliest civilized Europeans and therefore the earliest Greeks themselves. But the issue we're finding is the more and more we learn about the people who lived on this island, the more we're beginning to realize they weren't really a proto-Greek culture at all. They were their own unique culture, and in many ways, they were a fusion of cultures between the ancient world that we've talked about so much already this season and the eventual Greek city-state-dominated world that will emerge in southern Europe in the near future. Now, when we talk about the people who lived on the island of Crete, and I keep intentionally saying that uh, to sort of build suspense as we move forward. I think the best way to talk about them is the way we originally learned about them. Unlike the Egyptian civilization, the great Mesopotamian civilizations, the Persian Empire, we don't have a huge amount of records really giving us a very good sense of how they grew and how they expanded. So what we do have is the archaeology, what they leave behind. And in archaeology, you're very much faced with the reality that you have to start with a finished product, in many cases in ruins, and work your way backwards. And I think that's the best way to really begin to understand the people who lived on the island of Crete, whatever they may have called themselves. And it's a way we can grow and learn in our understanding of them as well. One of the things on the island of Crete you'll notice about this vast and very mysterious civilization is that their life seems to center around one particular style of building. And that building is what we would call in the modern sense a palace. All throughout the island of Crete, we find these enormous ruins of very large palaces. And these aren't palaces the way we traditionally think of them. These aren't necessarily the home of the royal family. But these palaces, from what we can see, 
tended to be your, perhaps, Walmart super centers of their day. If your local government also resided in a Walmart, and who knows where we'll be in the next few years. But at any rate, these palaces were enormous. They were clearly the heart of a royal world, yes, but also the heart of an economic and commercial world, also a religious world. All of the major aspects of Cretan life seem to take place in these palaces. All of it was centered around the palaces. These were vast urban areas. Some were on the coast, some were inland in the highlands. But this is true across the board. So it's a mysterious place with a huge archaeological record. But the fact of the matter is we know almost nothing about who these people were and how they really thought of themselves. I think the best way to talk about this is through the discovery of these palaces on their own. In the 19th century, an archaeologist named Arthur Evans from Britain was the first man to really unearth this culture and civilization on the island of Crete. Now, why he does what he does, the decisions that he makes, really can't be understood unless you understand really what's going on in the Victorian psyche of the 19th century, especially when it comes to archaeology. So a little bit of refresher on that first. Archaeology for most of history existed for very specific agenda-driven reasons. The earliest archaeologists were driven, and I'm talking about from the Roman period onward, by a religious fervor to validate and justify their faith. Many of these archaeological explanations went to the Holy Land, went to the ancient Near East, looking for relics of Christ and the Old Testament. Again, a validation of religion. And that really was how archaeology stagnated for much of the next, say, 1,500 years. As we get closer to the modern age, though, particularly 18th and 19th centuries, we begin to see archaeology occurring for different reasons. Now, by the time we get to the 20th century, remember our discussion of Howard Carter and King Tutankhamun's tomb, we'll see archaeology really emerge as a real science. But right now, in the time of Arthur Evans and the discovery of the Cretan civilization, we're really in the middle. And what Arthur Evans has to do is accept the fact that A, his dig is largely funded, if you're an archaeologist, on your own personal fortune or the fortune of a wealthy benefactor. And B, you have to really find something that's truly exciting, that's truly transformative to get people's attention and make them very excited. Remember, Europe in the late 19th century is a very competitive place, more competitive than ever before. You have a unified Germany on the rise. You have Britain, an old enemy of Germany there as well, and they're competing all the time. One of the places in which they compete is what they can find. Archaeologically is part of this much larger drama of European competition. Well, for Arthur Evans, as a Brit, he really has to find something exciting. He really has to find something that changes the way people view the past. Now, if he said he discovered a series of palace complexes on the island of Crete, that may be enticing, but not nearly as sexy as, say, finding one of the great relics of the ancient world that we've only seen in literature. A good example of this is in Anatolia, where we saw fellow uh, contemporaries of Evans, and even Evans himself to a degree, seeking out the great city of Troy, as we see in Homer's Iliad story. Uh, if you can find Troy, the base of the Trojan War, my goodness, think of the excitement around that. It's tabloid material. Well, what we can say is Arthur Evans is really driven by that 
sensationalist need for a major discovery. Now, he does want to find the truth. He does want to really stake his name as one of the great archaeological figures of all time, which, not to spoil the ending, he will, because we're talking about him now. But there is that reality of archaeology, that if you can produce something that has some name recognition, if you can produce something that validates a mythical past in some way, then you will be much more successful. Well, whenever Arthur Evans discovers these massive palaces on the Greek island of Crete, it will be much more profitable and much more newsworthy of him to find something that could perhaps validate in some way the ancient world, or at least some part of uh, the mythology of the ancient world in which he could be more successful. Well, when he makes his discovery, he, he will eventually get to the conclusion that the place he's discovered, the civilization that he's discovered, is the old myth of King Minos. Now, who is King Minos? Well, we need to talk a little bit about him as we move forward. King Minos, in Greek mythology, is a great king of the long ancient world. It's never made clear on where he's from or where he lives, but we know it's in Greece in some way. This is how the myth goes. Some say King Minos is the son of the god Zeus himself. Uh, other myths, and it's different from time to time, will say that Minos was just a very confident, very powerful king during his age. He was very full of himself. He was very bold. He believed that he was the greatest king to ever live on the planet Earth. Now, as the myth of King Minos goes, Minos will venture to the sea, and he will petition the god of the sea, the god of the ocean, Poseidon to give him a gift in his great honor. And what he asks for is an all-white bull. A white bull. A gift from the sea, from Poseidon, to honor King Minos' greatness. Well, as the story goes, Minos gets his gift, the white bull, and Poseidon, as god of the sea, expects that that white bull will be given back in return as a sacrifice to honor Poseidon's greatness. Well, that's not exactly what happens. King Minos will hold on to this bull, and he will keep it uh, seemingly out of arrogance and really in an affront to the gods. This is the story. Again, I have to keep reiterating this, uh, because this is mythology we're dealing with here. Now, the Greek world is an interesting place. Uh, the way their literary trends work, the way uh, we see developments in their mythology over time change. But one of the ways that the gods will punish King Minos for his hubris, that's a very Greek ideal hubris seen at the time, uh, is by transfixing the wife of King Minos onto uh, this, this white bull uh, given to him by the god Poseidon. Minos's wife is absolutely hypnotized by the white bull. She falls in love with the white bull. And of course, she engages in consensual sexual intercourse with the animal. But this is the ancient Greek world. Very interesting stuff. At any rate, it's a punishment to King Minos for his arrogance. His wife has sex with the bull, and the bull, of course, impregnates his wife. So we see a lot of different things going on here. Yes, there's this element of the gods punishing mankind for their evils. Yes, there's this element of male domination of a female in, in Western society. These are things that will really define our Western society for much of the next 2,000 years. But at any rate, the wife of Minos has the child of this bull, and you may know where this is going. The animal, the beast, is a monster. It's half man, half bull. It's known as the Minotaur. The Minotaur is a hideous creature. 
it's a great shame on King Minos because his wife was uh, dominated by this beast as a punishment for his own misgivings. It brings him great shame. So he has constructed an enormous palace complex he calls the Labyrinth that will hold this beastly minotaur, this half-man, half-beast, uh, and will hide his great shame. Now, as the story goes, uh, every year... There has to be a sacrifice to the Minotaur as a punishment for King Minos's misdeeds. And the, and the sacrifice is always uh, seven youths and seven maidens. And the Minotaur will get these 14 individuals and eat them, and it's all a very nasty scene. Now, here's where it gets interesting for us. Uh, where does Arthur Evans really find himself in a position to say the civilization he's found belongs to King Minos? Well, the temples were there. That was an easy one. That was a given. But one of the things that, that Arthur Evans also found was there were many within the soil, within the archaeological ruins themselves, many representations of the figure of the bull. And that's where he drew the logical conclusion. Now, if you find just another ancient ruin, you might make, you know, page six. If you find the lost palace of King Minos, then you're going to be front page news. And that's what Arthur Evans was effectively about. Now, as the story goes, um, eventually a Greek man from the mainland, Theseus, will come to the island, will come to the kingdom of Minos, he'll go into the labyrinth, and he'll kill the Minotaur, he'll conquer the beast. Um, that's mythology, that doesn't happen. But perhaps there's a little kernel of truth in the mythology, as we'll talk about later. Remember where Theseus came from, the mainland. He came from a Greek world and conquered this very foreign very, in his mind, barbaric world. But that's the story as we know it. The truth, I think, is far more compelling. When we look at what's left behind by the people that Arthur Evans will call the Minoans on the island of Crete, and that's the name we use today. Again, it's not the name they use, but it's the name we use. When we look at the things left behind by the Minoans on the island of Crete, we see a few undeniable facts in the incredibly well-preserved artifacts that we dig up. Number one is that the Minoans were a major seafaring culture. There's no question. Yes, they are an island. Yes, islanders tend to be seafaring peoples by their very nature. But the Minoans seem to possess a very powerful, very profound navy. Now, this is not necessarily a navy for fighting. I mean, it's, it would have been used for that. But also a navy for commerce, an entire fleet of ships for commerce alone. It's for these reasons we find Egyptian artifacts on the island of Crete. We find Mesopotamian artifacts on the island of Crete. We find Minoan artifacts in Egypt and in the ancient Near East as well. So clearly, in this much larger trade network of the ancient world, the Minoans in their island in the center of this great bathtub of culture that is the Mediterranean Sea were at the center of it. But you see it in their art, you see it in their decoration, you see it in the way they view the world. Uh, dolphins will figure prominently on pottery and on wall paintings during this time. Flying fish. Anyone who's ever been at sea knows that if you're sailing through the waters, the flying fish will be all around you all the time. Uh, these are all there, very indicative of a sailing community. But even more than that, which I think is really compelling is what the artwork tells us about how they viewed the world at the time, other than just how they made their living. One of the things we tend to see is that, unlike most cultures of the ancient world, which tended to be very male-dominated, and much later Greek cultures as well, what we can see is that the Minoans had an almost equal view 
of gender role in their society. Think of that. How progressive. How advanced. But to them, we can say men and women were largely considered to be equal. Perhaps even more than that, women may have been held in a higher regard than men ever were in the Minoan civilization. If we look at their religious sculptures, one of the things we see prominently featured uh, is a female holding uh, the serpent, holding the snake. The female seemed to be a high-ranking religious position. Uh, a man, a priest, could only advance so high. The highest-ranking religious positions probably tend to be female-dominated in that regard. But you also see throughout the artwork of the, of the time period that men and women, when they're drawn, are drawn almost as equals. Now, how do you tell that? Well, when you look at a lot of these frescoes, one of the things you notice is that the men and the women are drawn the same size. And that may not seem like a big deal. It seems like a very common artistic representation, to be realistic. But when you view the ancient world in the Near East, and especially Egypt, one of the things you always see is that the pharaoh, the male, is always much larger than the female sometimes twice the size of the female. This is done to show that, yes, men are physically bigger in some cases, but much more importantly, that the man is much more important than the female. And in this regard, when we look at these great frescoes of the Minoan civilization, we don't really see that at all. Artwork, in my opinion, has always been one of the most underrated and undervalued historical sources that we can use, especially for the ancient world. Because artwork is a direct window into the time period of the artist who's making it. The artist can do things in a painting that he or she doesn't even realize that they're doing. They're always adding a little bit of their own time period and their own world into their own work, even when they have no intention of doing it. But one of these great pieces of artwork from the Minoan world comes from a representation of an individual known as the Bull Leaper. Again, the bull features prominently in this culture. It's why Arthur Evans, the modern archaeologist, felt so compelled to call them the Minoans anyway. But the Bull Leaper is effectively this, and we see this in paintings as well as sculptures. Uh, one of the things young men of the Minoan world would do is be charged by a bull in sort of a test of their merit, a test of their manhood, a rite of passage. And as the bull ran at them, they would grab the bull by the horns, and propel themselves, leap over the bull as it charges them. Okay, now why is this so revealing? What is so important about this? Well, aside from being absolutely insane by most cases, certainly something as modern as we really shouldn't do, uh, dare the, the charging bull. It really shows the difference in conception of power, religion, and the role of man in the world from the Minoan viewpoint. The bull always charges. That's just what he does. He's an animal. He has no control. But as man, we have the option to leap the bull. We have the option to flee from the bull. We have the option to outsmart the bull. And that's the real symbolism of the bull leap in the Minoan world. It's very prevalent throughout their culture. The animal will charge. It has no control. That's what the animal does. As man, we're meant to dominate the animal and therefore dominate the natural world. There is nowhere better to get a glimpse of Minoan life than the building, than the palace that fundamentally defines who these people were. It's their largest palace. It's their most powerful palace. It's known as Kenosis. Now, Kenosis is a very, I think, impressive building for a lot of reasons. One, it's enormous. Uh, but two, it really shows the communal spirit of who 
the Minoans are. It's not a closed-in walled structure. Uh, it's a structure that's very large, it's very flat, it has many open courtyards and many chambers for many different styles of doings to go on. Economic, commercial, religious, and political. But it's very much a place at the center of the community, and for most regards, a place for everybody. If you were the average Minoan person, you would have had to go to the palace at Knossos for one reason or the other, whether it is to shop or handle business or pay taxes or anything of that sort. But Knossos, I think, is also impressive because of the level of preservation that we see there. We have this idea in the modern age, that when we see the ancient world, we see ruins. We see dusty, dirty, old, broken-down remnants of an age long ago. Again, they're not appealing to our modern eye. Think of the Parthenon. It's a very beautiful structure, but it's all its very white. It's very pale. Um, and it's not necessarily a very flavorful venture. It's all very vanilla. But one of the things you have to understand is that what you're seeing is a ruin. What you're seeing is the last core remnant of an original structure. And Kenosis is really wonderful for this reason. It preserves a lot of its original coloration. It's great reds, it's great blues, it's great yellows and greens. These incredible frescoes remain on the walls. The pillars remain a deep dark red, uh, whereas in other parts of the ancient world you just see that very dull brownish white sand color on most of these ruins. But the Kenosis Temple, I'd encourage you to look at some images of it it's a massive, massive place, uh, home to probably thousands of people every day. But it really embodies who these Minoans are and how they live their lives. The temple complex, the palace structure, was at the center of their everyday life. And although the palace at Knossos contained no minotaur in any way, shape, or form, it was very indicative of who they are and how they operated. It's always impressive to think about where we are today, how advanced we are today, and how far we've come. And Kenosis is one of the great reminders for us that we're really probably not as advanced as we think, or at least as advanced as we think when compared to these earlier peoples. One of the things about Kenosis that always strikes me is the way that water was manipulated and used in the palace itself. Because in some places you actually had examples of running water and working toilets for that matter. I mean, it's, it's really an amazing find. It's really a, a brilliant idea to think that in the ancient world, those sort of capabilities existed. But what it all leads us to believe is that the Minoans were a very advanced people. And they were very advanced, not because they grew on their own, not because they sprouted up all by themselves but because they benefited from this larger ancient world that was all around them. Again, ships sailed from all corners of the Mediterranean Sea, and the people of Crete, the Minoans, had this wonderful uh, blessing of geography to be right in the center of all of it. Now, we don't know, again, much about who they were. We have some examples of their writing, but really all we have is archaeology, and a lot of that writing we can't translate. So we don't know what they called themselves. We don't know necessarily their basic history. We have a lot of holes in the discussion that only archaeology can really address. And here's what we know for certain. By 2700 BCE, that's almost 5,000 years ago, we're seeing the emergence of what we could call the Minoan civilization. But we see that seemingly advanced and very successful civilization really destroyed and devastated by about the year 1500 BCE, about 1200 years later.
So why does that happen? Well, again, we don't have the answer for it, but the archaeology shows us that there was certainly a catastrophic event that occurred around the year 1500 BCE that in all likelihood weakened the Minoans to the point where their civilization was incredibly vulnerable or could not continue at all. Now, what could that event be? Well, again, for as little as we know about the Minoans, we have a great deal of remaining evidence from the land itself that gives us a great insight into their world. If you would go about 70 miles north of the island of Crete, you'd see a small, circular, half-moon-shaped island known as Santorini. Today, Santorini is a very popular tourist destination. But Santorini is most notable for what happened in about the year 1500 BCE on that island. Because at that time, we saw the volcanic eruption uh, of Thera occur. Now, most would say when you look at the damage done, and you look at the geomorphological remains on the island of Santorini, the Thera eruption may have been the single largest and most destructive eruption in the history of the ancient world. The more we learn about the eruption of the volcano Thera on the island of Santorini, the more damage we understand that it's actually done. But even though it's 70 miles away from Crete, that same explosion on the island of Santorini may have very well, and quite literally, sunk the Minoan civilization itself. On the island of Santorini at the time of the eruption of Thera, there was a city called Akrotiri, and Akrotiri probably was very closely related to the Minoan civilization. They were something of a small empire as a sea-based uh, power uh, in the islands around the island of Crete. Well, in 1500 BC, Thera erupts, Akrotiri is completely destroyed by this volcanic eruption. But the interesting thing about volcanic eruptions, and really what we can call as a whole uh, tectonic episodes, like the eruption of Thera, is just how interconnected they all are in terms of a chain reaction. So let me explain the eruption of Thera to have a better sense of how it would affect the people of Crete. Whenever you have a volcanic eruption, for most of history, as human beings, we had no idea why it was happening and how it could be prevented. There really is no way to prevent it, we know now. But we tried all of these ludicrous ways to do so. We tried praying to the gods because the volcanic eruption must be the gods being angry at us. Well, we know now today that volcanic eruptions occur uh, because of a, the plate tectonics theory. And the plate tectonics theory basically says that the Earth's crust are like giant floating pieces of rock. And sometimes these pieces of rock, about the size of continents, bounce into each other, they rub against each other, they, they separate from one another, they cause splinters or breaks in the Earth's crust, and lava or magma will spew forth. Now when that happens, there's always some certain other elements that go along with it. The volcanic eruption is caused by the collision of these two plates. Well, when you have what we would describe as seismic activity occur, volcanic eruption being one of them, there's always corresponding elements of that as well. When the Thera volcano erupted, one of the things we saw was that the sea floor beneath Santorini, but truly through the entire Aegean Sea, was slightly displaced. And when that displacement happens, you have to see a reaction occur elsewhere. Well, the reaction that occurred with the displacement of the sea floor would have been a massive tsunami. The tsunami occurs from the transfer of energy. It's a little bit too sciencey for the podcast about history, I'm sure. But energy is never created 
or destroyed. It's just transferred. While the energy of that massive eruption caused a tsunami wave, leaving the island of Santorini only amplifying itself as it approached the island of Crete. Now, we were never sure exactly how big this wave would have been or how much damage it would have done. But recent archaeology on Crete has shown that the Thera eruption on Santorini, 70 miles north, caused a wave so big that it easily went about 20 meters above sea level. There were places uh, in what we would consider to be very high ground on the coast of the island of Crete, again, about 130 miles long where you see small fossilized sea creatures being mixed in around the upper layer of soil. The only way sea creatures could have gotten to be that high, and I'm talking about microscopic sea creatures, is if the ocean itself reached that high. So what we can say in the year 1500 BCE was that this massive wave from the Santorini eruption 70 miles north completely washed away the overwhelming majority of the Minoan civilization. Interestingly enough, the great palace at Knossos was largely untouched by this wave because Knossos was in the highlands of the island. But the cities along the coast, the great naval fleets that we've talked about, were all completely and utterly destroyed by this tsunami wave. It was a natural disaster that the people of Crete had no response to. And in fact, there's nothing you can do if you've ever seen a tsunami in action. It is one of the most intensely dangerous and deadly forces in all of nature. You can't really prepare. All you can do is run. But by the time you know it's coming, it's probably already too late. In 2004, we saw a massive tsunami from a very similar seismic occurrence in the Pacific Ocean. And the, and the results were catastrophic in all throughout the Pacific Basin. But now, with advanced warning, we can give people a chance to escape. We can use computers to predict where the wave will be and when it will be there. In this time period, they had nothing like that. So by the time they saw the enormous wall of water coming toward them on the island of Crete, it was already too late. We don't want to say that the Thera eruption and the massive tsunami that followed destroyed the Minoan civilization, because it didn't. But what we can say is this. It really dangerously weaken the civilization to the point that an outside aggressor, if interested, could move in, sensing opportunity, and wipe out the people of the island. And that's exactly what we'll see. At about the year 1500 BCE, right after this terribly destructive tsunami, we'll see a group of people called the Mycenaeans from mainland Greece, about 100 miles north venture to the island of Crete, seeing the value, seeing the prosperity, seeing the wealth, and conquer the island. This is really the death knell to the Minoan civilization. They may exist in very tiny elements on the island after the Mycenaean invasion, but the Mycenaeans probably saw, and again this is speculation, that after the tsunami, the great navy of the Minoans was destroyed. Most of their coastal cities and therefore coastal defenses was destroyed, and the island was theirs for the taking. Now, the Mycenaeans are what we would think of as the earliest Greeks of the ancient world, and it's from their land that we'll really see the flourishing and emergence of Greek culture as we know it. The Cretans, however, suffered the consequences of a very turbulent and very politically unstable world. You can never account for a massive tsunami washing away over 1,200 years of civilization. But as we'll see, much of the time, 
natural occurrences like that will have great effect to a people that seemingly is unprepared for the event. One of the things you get when you study the Minoans overall is that you have to deal with the fact that you have a lot of unanswered questions. And there, quite frankly, a lot of questions we'll never have answers to. Arthur Evans gave the mythology of King Minos and the Minotaur to these people to bring them to life. But it probably was, in, in the end, a disservice to who they really were. Now, remember we talked about how the Minotaur was killed by Theseus in the myth. And the myth was that this Greek, Theseus, came to the island and killed the beast, conquered the foreign people in that regard. One of the things about mythology you have to understand is that nothing ever comes from nothing. Think of that. Nothing ever comes from nothing. It's one of the great number one rules of studying mythology. Theseus was a Greek. The Minotaur was a product of this foreign, different Minoan world. What if that myth developed as a response to the Greek Mycenaean conquest of the Cretan world after the Great Tsunami? Think of that. Remember, Poseidon's wrath was given out to King Minos uh, by producing the Minotaur for his arrogance. Well, Poseidon's wrath would lead us to believe that the sea was a large part of the story. And isn't it interesting, isn't it fitting that a Greek, an outsider, a foreigner, is the one who conquers the great beast that's become the symbol of the Minoan culture? Remember, nothing comes from nothing. Now, there's no way of proving this, but it's very likely that the myth of King Minos developed after the Mycenaean Greek conquest of the island of Crete as a way of explaining this very touchy and very difficult history. On the next episode, we'll venture to mainland Greece and see the emergence of what many believe to be the golden age of the Greek world. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.